The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. Learn who rules over you, simply find out if you're not allowed to criticize. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host, and before we start today's show, I would like to thank James for his recent donation. If you are able to help keep the show on the air, then please go to achshow.com and click the banner at the top. Today is Thursday, so of course it's time for our weekly get-together with Dr. Peter Havens, so let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with us? I am with you. Yes. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And before we dive into today's topic, um, could you let the audience know how they could support your ministry financially, please? Well, Frontline Fellowship is a faith mission. Uh, our website's www.frontlinemissionsa.org. We've been going for 40 years and serving persecuted churches, working in restricted access areas and uh, uh, doing everything we can to support the forces of freedom. Uh, such as in South Sudan, where the men should break free of the jihadist government there, and uh, Zambia, which was once under communist rule, which is now officially Christian, with lots of religious freedom. We are working for Cape Independence here, and of course we're doing everything we can to subvert the New World Order by smuggling Bibles into areas where they're illegal. It may surprise people to know that there's 66 countries in the world where the Bible is actually restricted and illegal by government laws. Uh, so Frontline Fellowship, uh, our email is mission at frontline.org.za uh, and the website www.frontlinemissionsa.org. Thank you, Peter. Yes, folks, please, um, you know, support Peter's work. He does such fantastic presentations and obviously uh, we need uh, funding for Peter and his mission. I know it's difficult for those of you out there, you listen to a lot of different people that rely on the support of you, the audience, but that is by design, as you know. Um, Deplatforming is done for a reason. Restriction on being able to sell products is done for a reason. It's because they don't want us here, so then we have to go to you directly to ask for your support so that being said let's get today's show underway the title that peter has for us is the real story of the world war of world views so peter where would you like to start us off today with this topic we are in a world war of world views and so often people get confused as to why they're saying that and why they're doing this and it doesn't actually make sense and what on earth does this have to do with anything and why are they suddenly all going about attacking on the gender issues and transgenderism and what's behind this men needing to get into women's bathrooms and men needing to play women's sports and what on earth has critical race theory got to do with education and uh, you may just wonder why some films are like they are and artwork well when you understand the worldviews it actually makes sense and before you even get into the worldviews uh, one, one should just remind people of the reality of cultural Marxism or uh, the whole Frankfurt School of Cultural Marxism or the termite strategy, the Gramsci strategy. Antonio Gramsci was the founder of the Italian Communist Party and Antonio Gramsci uh, decided right back there in 1920s that Vladimir Lenin got it lucky and we're unlikely to ever again have the same correlation of forces that brought down the great Christian empire of Russia and the czars and replaced them with the commissars. Uh, no, uh, Europe is too Christian, and we will not succeed with a revolution in Europe. 
um, uh, even though uh, we did manage to get it right in, in the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, in the Russian Empire, uh, what was then the Soviet Union. So he said, in the West, we're going to need to use the termite strategy, which many now call the Gramsci strategy, which is that we need to work on a worldview basis. We've got to work on, on the cultural um, caring institutions, which they identified as education, entertainment, news media, religious institutions, and political institutions. Now, of these all, education is like the thumb. Education is absolutely key. And so they've been working at, at infiltrating educational institutions, uh, both training and certifying of the teachers, and of course, the textbooks, curriculum is very important, and uh, entertainment and news media. Now, most people think news is telling you uh, facts uh, instead of views, and most would think entertainment is just entertainment, not indoctrination, brainwashing. And when you go to education, well, you'd assume you're sending your child or grandchildren off to get educated as to how to think critically, when in many cases, the cultural marks have been working to make sure they're actually being taught what to think, not to think critically, but to be able to believe whatever the narrative is that the New World Order is pushing. Well, the key to this is the worldview battle. And most people don't think in terms of worldviews, but worldviews are key because uh, everyone has a worldview. Everyone is influenced by worldview, whether consciously or subconsciously, whether consistently or inconsistently, not saying everyone's consistent with the worldview either, but your worldview is that list or set of presuppositions or assumptions, which can be true, they could be partially true, they could be false. But for example, if you see something that doesn't make sense to your eyes, your brain will rationalize and explain it. So for example, if you see water flowing uphill, you know that there must be a pump pushing it uphill because water can't flow uphill uh, because of gravity. And so your worldview understands that when you see something that violates that, for example, somebody who seems to be floating or flying in the sky, um, uh, in a movie, for example, you'd assume, well, there must be some wires, there could be a green screen. You know, you, you don't have to see the evidence to understand that because of the reality of gravity, if you see something that violates that, you know that there must be some other explanation behind it because your worldview understands that there's a world with real laws such as gravity, which isn't just a good idea, it's, it's the law. You don't break the law of gravity as much as the law of gravity will break you if you violate it, step off the edge of the mountain or think that your Superman um, outfit that you bought at the toy shop will enable you to fly. Um, well, it, it won't. So... In fact, in the toy stores, they've actually got signs on Spider-Man and uh, Superman type outfits warning, uh, wearing this does not enable wearer to fly. You know, So um, uh, interesting, good to have that warning, just in case some people didn't fully comprehend the importance of gravity. So your worldview consists of those sets of beliefs and presuppositions which you hold about basic realities of the world. And this is what the cultural Marxists have been busy with, because the Frankfurt School of Cultural Marxism attempted to break down all ties of blood, soil, nation, faith, and family to create a new world order, a classless world society of world communism. And so uh, their goal is to have infiltrated every single institution of the West, what they call the long march through the institutions of the West, educational institutions, entertainment industry, uh, the news media, and uh, of course, ultimately through the religious institutions and the political institutions to bring about their classless world society. And so uh, this is part of their goal is multiculturalism, to reverse God's judgment of Babel, uh, to have one voice, um, many nations, one voice. And this is what the EU is doing in, in deliberately building their parliament building in Strasbourg in the shape of the Tower of Babel and especially mirroring the famous uh, painting by the uh, Belgian artist Bruegel where you can see uh, the Tower of Babel is incomplete and even the scaffolding. And so they, they, they built their uh, building in Strasbourg for the EU in the same shape, exactly mirroring this, and even used it as the icon for uh, promoting the EU, saying, EU, many tongues, one voice. I mean, that's their slogan. And they even took the five-pointed stars and inverted them so that the, the point is going downward, so it looks like the goat's beard and then the goat's ears and the goat's horns. Um, taking the occultic symbol style of the five-pointed star to represent the stars of, of the EU in this poster, many tongues, one voice, with the Tower of Babel behind 
but now shaped into the EU building in Strasbourg. And on every level, you can see the goal of the secular humanists, the cultural Marxists, is to break down ties of blood, soil, nation, faith, family, to create a new world order. And so uh, what Antonio Gramsci says is, we've got to take the European Christian mind and turn it to a non-Christian mind, and then move it to an anti-Christian mind. We have to get them to think about every problem in society, no longer in terms of what God says or what the Bible says, uh, but in terms of secular humanism, in terms of Marxist dialectic, to be able to get the people of the West to move from a Christian mindset where they answer every problem in reference to what the Bible says and what the law of God says, to rather think in terms of secular humanism. This is the cultural Marxist theory. So Antonio Gramsci described the termite strategy where he said, imagine you've got this wooden structure and the termites are eating the insides of the pillars and uh, the beams. And uh, it doesn't matter how many uh, coats of paint you put over it and whitewash, uh, the termites are carrying on day and night eating out the heart of those beams and those cross beams and those pillars. And one day the whole structure will collapse. And so we, talking about the cultural Marxists, need to work like termites within the Western society, breaking down every aspect of uh, the society. Uh, and now, uh, along with Antonio Gramsci in this uh, Frankfurt school, there was also the man, um, uh, I think Herbert Marcuse, who is the professor, and he said, we need to use foul language, um, blasphemy, obscenity, vulgarity, like verbal grenades against the bourgeois to break down Christian civilization. So we need to introduce into arts and plays and uh, music, and of course the films were just starting at that stage. They hadn't yet got to talkies, it was still early 20s. Um, so it's going to take a while before they could do that. But he said, we must start celebrating ugliness instead of beauty and disorder instead of order and a breaking down people's Christian worldview, breaking down this this uh, biblical worldview that that has uh, um, dominated the West for so many centuries because now we're after revolution, but we can't do a revolution of streets. We need a revolution of mind, a revolution of heart, a revolution of culture, and it's a worldview battle and getting people's thinking changed. And it's been a long, hard battle. It's taken a century. It's taken generations, but they've managed to move people in the West to the point where saying something as simple as, well, there's only two genders, or marriage can only be between a man and a woman. That can get you deplatformed. That can get you fired from being a professor of university. That could get you into serious trouble um, uh, because you said something as obvious as, well, there's only two genders, or marriage can only be between a man and a woman. I mean, that now is a thought crime. That now will get you into trouble if you make comments like that. And so, interesting, if you go onto Wikipedia to see what the pagans say, they'll say cultural Marxism refers to a far-right anti-Semitic conspiracy theory which claims that Western Marxism is the basis of continuing academic and intellectual efforts to subvert Western culture. So this is an ideological um, uh, movement. It's a thought crime, uh, and you're not meant to uh, think about this. So interesting, uh, they want you to, they say that this idea of cultural Marxism is to make Americans feel guilty about subverting their Christian culture. And of course, they shouldn't feel guilty about subverting Christian culture because that's a good thing, they say. So uh, when when you consider uh, what they are planning to do and how they're trying to bring in, for example, atheism, uh, A is a negative and theos is God. So atheism, there is no God. Naturalistic view of reality, belief that no God exists or um, Deconstructionism, the whole idea that any literary discipline must be dismantled. You know, it doesn't matter what Shakespeare said. What did he mean? Not really what he meant, but what do we want him to say? And so we project into Jane Austen or Charles Dickens or Shakespeare or any other writer uh, what we actually uh, want to communicate to communicate cultural Marxism. And so you, you try to turn Jane Austen, who is as traditional as they come, into a feminist a radical feminist of today, which of course she was not. She was promoting very much um, uh, marriage as the ideal and family and Christian standard. But they, they're trying to deconstruct these, just like they try and take the constitution, the law, to change what it obviously says and to change what the original writers meant it to be and uh, to 
put it into what we want it to be. That's deconstructionism. And, and then, of course, egalitarianism, the belief that total equality must exist for everyone in every area, politically, socially, culturally, economically. Every opinion, all talents, all wealth must become equal initially. Well, then, of course, some are more equal than others. And before you know it, um, the Christian view is completely unacceptable as a thought crime. And so basically, uh, egalitarianism becomes where elites rule in a land of equals, or as George Orwell put it, in Animal Farm, all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others, referring to the pigs who were the politicians. Um, and then you've got existentialism, which is another uh, humanistic worldview that they've brought in, saying that it's basically introspective. Who cares about history? Who cares about the future? The only thing that matters is now. Me, myself, and uh, me, myself, and I, the new trinity. Me, myself, and I, my personal experience now. Live for the moment. Uh, it can't be bad if it feels so good. And so basically, you live in a meaningless universe where the only thing that matters is my personal subjective opinions at this moment. And hedonism, another um, one of these worldview ideas where pleasures, the sole end in life, uh, decrease the pain, increase the pleasure. Um, uh, hedonism comes from the French word world weary, uh, le nouveau, always looking for the new. And so um, hedonism is, um, you know, eat, drink and be merry um, kind of mentality. And uh, humanism is the worldview that summarizes a lot of these. It's the, the big family worldview, which says the only thing that really matters is man, uh, me, myself and I, but it's human uh, virtues and values are the highest value. So we basically take the throne that was normally reserved for God, determining what's right and wrong. And, you know, as the serpent said to Eden the garden, you shall be as gods. And uh, that's a key part of it. Materialism is another key part of this uh, termite strategy, uh, that nothing exists except matter. And everything that exists is material and natural and a product of time and choice, uh, not choice really, but chance. Time and chance and matter. So evolutionary Darwinism, basically. Uh, these are just some of the views out there because every worldview, and you can evaluate anyone's worldview, whether it's an author you're reading or a lecturer or a speaker or a journalist or a politician, you can evaluate their worldview by asking these key six questions. Number one, what is the author or the reader or the producer using to interpret the facts? I mean, are they using the Bible or Das Kapital and, and uh, are they using uh, the Marxist Manifesto? I mean, what is it that they're using to interpret the facts? Is it the origin of species by uh, Darwin? I mean, what's their source of, of their um, foundation for interpreting facts? Number two, what is his fundamental belief about life? And of course, if you believe that once upon a time there was nothing and then there was something and that something became everything. If you believe in cosmic accident from goo to the zoo to you, from mud and molecules to man, to monkeys and man, well, you can see what the fundamental views of life are that'll tell you about where they're coming from. And how consistent is this worldview? Sometimes you will find a Marxist borrowing some uh, lumber, some wood and trees from the Christian forest and uh, you'll sometimes get them being very inconsistent and saying something like, well, you know, I believe we've got to do to others we want them to do to us, which rings a few bells because isn't that what Jesus said? Yes, actually he did. That's in the Sermon on the Mount. And so sometimes they will, they will appropriate a Christian view and contort it, uh, distort it, yes, but they're not always consistent in their worldviews. For example, when people say that's not fair or that's not just, well, according to what standard? Because the very concept of justice comes from the Bible and from God's law and the fact that God is a holy and just God. So are they consistent? Not always. What are the practical implications of their worldview? Practically, if you look at uh, their worldviews, um, well, for example, you just have to look at the Berlin Wall, uh, the Iron Curtain. And as Margaret Thatcher said, the Berlin Wall stands as concrete proof that when people have a choice, they choose to be free. How interesting that they needed to build walls to keep their people in. As Margaret Thatcher also said, freedom has its problems, but we have never needed to build walls to keep our people in. And um, so one of the implications of the worldview of 
the new socialist man and the workers' paradise and the workers' utopia and rejection of Christian values is they need to build walls and shoot the people in the back to keep them in. Uh, because it's interesting, where do people move to? Where do people migrate to? Where, where's the uh, mobilization of, of migration? Are people migrating to Islamic countries, Marxist countries, uh, animist countries? Are they all migrating to Hindu countries or Buddhist countries? No, isn't it interesting? Uh, people tend to migrate in the direction of where Christianity was uh, the foundation of this uh, society. And while it might have been rejected recently, there's still a whole of the fruit of freedom and progress and prosperity and productivity that people are attracted to, which came from the biblical worldview. So what's the practical implications of the worldview? I mean, for example, if you believe that you've got to have government interfering in the economy, well, what happens when governments nationalize things and overtax people and so on? Well, we've got a few examples in history about that. What will it mean for me personally? I mean, what this person is advocating? What will it mean for me personally? And of course, for many people, uh, socialist societies often means, well, you might as well stay home and just collect welfare and uh, live on the dole because uh, why should I slave and work hard just to get heavily taxed to give to people who didn't work? I mean, why should we all study hard, uh, say no to the invitations for the parties while we're at university and decide to study hard and uh, work hard for the exam? If after the exam's marked, the teacher goes around and um, apportions the um, averages to everyone so that we, well, this person got more marks than everyone else, so let's take some of their marks and give it to the people who got smaller marks. Well, why would you study if you're going to get an average in the end anyway? Um, why would you uh, work hard and deprive yourself of sleep and uh, friends and parties uh, to get good marks if they're going to take those marks and distribute to others? Well, if that's true for academics and exams, and isn't it also true for economics and work ethic and businesses? And, well, it is. Uh, people aren't very motivated to go out and sacrifice and save. And if you're going to have... Um, Joe Biden decide to uh, pay off your college debt, then would you have got that extra job and worked hard to have uh, uh, built up the um, debt, actually, um, in order to get your degree? Uh, if somebody else did nothing like that, they didn't work for their degree. They they just ended with a massive college debt and now it's paid out by the government, or should we say by the taxpayer. So what will it mean for me personally? Well, um, for example, Joe Biden's recent... Um, a ploy to try and buy voters by paying off college debt. Interesting to take uh, the college debt of people who are now maybe uh, doctors, lawyers, uh, architects and so on and cancel their debt and then pass it on to the hardworking plumbers and uh, carpenters and electricians um, who didn't go to university but went straight to work and have been working hard. Now they are getting another $1,500 added to their tax bill because of this idea of cancelling people's college debt and getting the taxpayer to settle it. So that's number five. Number six, what will it mean for the world in general? I mean, if the whole world adopted the policies being advocated. So, for example, a person may say, we need to have, say, universal health care, um, everyone equal, uh, the government in charge of everything, no firearms allowed, this, that, and the other, and they carry on and on. And you say, well, they've got that already in Cuba. Um, why don't you go to Cuba and live there because um, they've already got all the policies you want. And the person's angry because, no, I want this in England or in America now. Uh, you've got to have these policies. But those policies exist, and you're free to move. Why, why don't you go to the countries which have it? I mean, if you like these sort of policies, go to North Korea or Saudi Arabia or uh, Cuba, where, wherever uh, they are epitomizing the very policies you want. What will it mean if the whole world adopted the policies of, say, Cuba? Or North Korea, what would it mean? So those are the questions. What is he using to interpret his facts? What's his fundamental belief about life? How consistent is his worldview? What are the practical implications of his worldview? What will it mean for me personally? And what will it mean for the world in general? So specific questions to understand people's worldview, where they're coming from, is intellectually. What does this speaker or leader believe is true about himself and his place in history? Physically, how does he treat or mistreat his body by eating, sleeping, exercising, over, under, whatever? Socially, 
How does he interact with his friends and enemies? How does he interact with the rich and the poor and the strong and the weak? And how people treat the weak uh, often tells you a lot. Economically, what is his motivation work and how does he spend his wages? Well, when you see what people do with their discretionary income, you can see what's important to them. And ethically, what moral guidelines and obligations direct us thinking about justice and righteousness? So what do they think is just and right? Of course, many people's idea of justice and righteousness is very warped because interesting how you will get, for example, uh, the people who scream, my body, my choice when it comes to abortion. Don't believe in my body, my choice when it comes to something like uh, self-defense, whether you want to have firearms for self-defense or not. They don't believe you should have any choice but that. They don't think you should have a choice over whether some medical tyrant can inject some substance into your body, some experimental drug, um, and mandate whether they call it a vaccine or what, and uh, that you've got to wear a mask no matter what. My mask doesn't work unless you're wearing one too, and my vaccination won't work unless you got it too. And uh, your body, no, it's not your choice. It's Fauci's choice or Bill Gates' choice or whatever, but it's not your choice. Uh, how consistent are they when it comes to your child and uh, going to either a government school, a private independent school, or being home educated, do you have that choice? No. The same people who say my body, my choice when it comes to abortion and when it comes to vaccinations, when it comes to self-defense and when it comes to masquerade madness, uh, they want you to say that you don't have a choice um, when it uh, comes to anything that really is your body, but they should have the choice on that. So interesting. They're not always consistent. There's the rationalist human worldview, which says reality can only be guided by human reason alone. There's the materialist who says nothing's real except the physical. There's the existentialist who says everything must be looked at from my personal subjective experience alone. And then there's agnosticism, which says it's impossible to settle the primary questions of life because of the limitations of human knowledge. So when we're dealing with these people, whether it is the teacher that purports to educate my child at school, or whether it comes to the news presenter or the film producer, uh, or the political party that wants your votes, you should ask these questions. And um, what do they think is reality? I mean, some people say there's no reality. Um, uh, what is your base of knowledge? Um, how do you know anything to be right and wrong? That's the third question. What is man? You know, are we just matter and motion? Are we just a cosmic accident? Are we just evolved slime? What happens to a person after death? Are we believing in reincarnation, cosmic recycling, that sort of thing? Uh, what is the meaning of history? Is it what the communists say, that it's, in fact, uh, the uh, inevitability of, of uh, history, the whole um, uh, march of, of the dialectic because of economic determinism? You know, what is the meaning of history? Why is there suffering and evil in the world? Is it as the ancient Greeks believed that the different gods were fighting with one another, which has put down all seriousness as the cause of the uh, most famous war of all, the siege of Troy, uh, 2,500 years before Christ? Um, uh, what is the reason there's suffering and evil? Is it rival gods putting up um, different uh, bets with uh, one another, which is why Troy started to be... Um, actually attacked and besieged according to ancient um, Greek history. What is the purpose of our existence? Is it just to live for pleasure? How should we then live? So these are some key questions that any worldview has got to answer. And um, the Bible makes it clear that God is ultimate reality. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And our basis for knowledge is God's revelation. In the past, God spoke through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So how can we know what's right and wrong? Well, we can know what's right and wrong from the Bible, because all scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. What is man? Well, man is fallen creation. We, we are created by God, but human nature is sinful, actually depraved. And because we were created by God, there's some good even in the worst of us. But because we are fallen, there's bad even in the best of us. So we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. After death, what happens? Well, the Bible makes it clear 
man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So after death, we will <clears throat> have to give an account to our creator, the eternal God, the eternal judge. <clears throat> we shall either face God's gracious rewards in heaven or we'll enjoy some kind of just punishment. <coughs> Pardon me. <coughs> if you want to take, so if you want to take a moment, Peter, just uh, just take a moment. I'm going to just jump in quickly while uh, I just take a moment there, uh, folks. Yes. Uh, this is a time to mention um, what's what we're doing uh, or Peter's doing. And this was in one of the posts for the two shows we did last week. Um, the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. Now, this takes place on Sunday, November the 13th, so it's still a couple of weeks away. I will mention it now because, of course, say you're in the west coast of the United States, then you're going to be um, 10 hours ahead of South Africa, okay? Uh, nine or 10 hours ahead. I believe 10. Uh, and so if you get up in the morning and you're looking forward to following this International Day of Prayer on the various means that Peter will explain later in the show, you might find that the events are finished. So it's something you really need to get in your diaries now if it's something that interests you. Peter, are you uh, ready to continue? Yes, I am, certainly. But that's okay. Thank, well, you know, these things just happen every now and then. So uh, we're, we're on looking at these different questions and uh, uh, what happens after after death? Will we face judgment? Man is destined to die once and after the judgment. A sixth key question that all worldviews answers, what is the meaning of history? Well, history is his story, actually. It's God is sovereign over history. History is meaning. And in the Bible, we see in Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, that there are consequences. There are blessings for obedience to the laws of the creator and there's curses for disobedience. And so... Uh, ultimately, while we are all judged in eternity as individuals, we are judged as nations on earth. And so you might be a good person, comparatively speaking, living in a wicked nation, and you still suffer the droughts and the famines and the earthquakes and the floods and all the other terrible things, which may be God's judgment on a wicked society. Similarly, you might be a wicked person living in a generally obedient or just society and benefit from the productivity and the prosperity and the freedoms and the peace uh, that are the fruit of, of many other people's uh, dedication. So there is a sense in which nations are judged on earth and where, of course, we are all judges, individuals in eternity after death. So history makes sense in a sense that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and he gives them to anyone he wishes. And while it does seem that evil triumphs for a short time, um, sometimes far too long in our mind, yet you can ultimately see that tyrants are overthrown. And, uh, you know, whether it is speaking about the Ceausescu's and the um, uh, Mandela's and the Mugabe's and the, uh, uh, the the different Pol Pot's and Khan of this world and the Fidel Castro's, ultimately they will face eternal judgment by God. But you will also see wicked governments, whether it is the Roman Empire that persecuted the church or the Soviet Empire at Persecute Church, they will ultimately fall and collapse, and it will be a spectacular collapse when they do. So there is a sense in which you can see the hand of God moving, and sometimes a society has been given enough rope to actually hang themselves, and you can see where that society is and how rotten they are. Uh, there's consequences. What a man sows, that shall he reap. There's, there's ultimately good fruit that can be harvested from a sacrifice and, and obedience and good deeds done in accordance with God's law, and there are very bad results of, of breaking all of God's laws. And we can just see how all the economic laws being broken in America uh, recently and the Biden administration bring forth an absolutely uh, terrible flood of negative consequences, and meddling in other people's businesses causes wars and, and so on. So this gets into the seventh question. What is the reason that there's suffering and evil? Why is there suffering and evil? I mean, if God is good, why is there suffering and evil in the world? Well, the answer is suffering and evil are the result of man's rebellion against God since the fall. And uh, the Marxists will have another reason for suffering and evil. They'll say it's all economic determinism and so on. Uh, but uh, biblically, we look and we say everything bad in the world is the result of man's rebellion to God. 
everything bad in the world comes from man either ignoring or disobeying God's laws. And uh, if we, if you go against the manufacturer's handbook, you've got to expect the equipment to malfunction. And uh, the world and mankind is going against the manufacturer's handbook, against the creator's guidelines and the word of God in the Bible. And so do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. What a man sows, that shall he also reap. And uh, what is our purpose in this? Well, the purpose of our existence should be to glorify God and to worship him forever. Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria is the Latin uh, battle cry of the Reformation. And so how should we live? We should live in obedience with the Bible, God's revealed word. Um, the Lord your God commands you this day to follow these decrees and laws, carefully observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. And so the Bible makes it clear we are in a world war of worldviews. The very first psalm, Psalm 1, starts off and summarizes all 150 psalms, which are, it's the biggest book in the Bible, Psalms. Well, the first psalm starts off with, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in seasons, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers, not so the wicked. They are like the chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So Psalm 1 gives this great contrast of the way of wisdom and the way of foolishness, the way of obedience to God's word and the way of disobedience, the way of prosperity and blessing and the way of chaos and uh, judgment. And our Lord Jesus summarized it in these ways in Matthew 12, verse 30. He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. And Joshua uh, challenged the children of Israel at the very uh, edge of the promised land, saying, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And so this is a great challenge. You can see often you've got to make a choice. And on Mount Carmel, Elijah went before all the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, we'll follow him. And so people must make a choice. And the trouble is today, people don't want to make a choice. They want to just sit in the fence often and uh, see which way the wind blows and or go with the flow. And that's not biblical. Uh, Romans 12, verse 1 to 2 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So Romans 12 makes it clear that there's a choice. You can be conformed to this world, or you can be transformed by the word of God. Now, it's the world or the word. Are you going to go God's way? Are you going to follow the world, which in many ways is the dominion of Satan? And James 4 verse 4 gives a rebuke. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of this world becomes an enemy of God. Colossians 2.8 says, See to that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. And so plainly we are involved in a world war of worldviews. There are those who fear God, and remember the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, it's the beginning of knowledge, and that's written over the entrance to quite a few old universities. Uh, but unfortunately we've got a lot of foolishness out there where people choose not to fear God but rather fear man. And not to fear the word of God and to respect the word of God, but rather to be more concerned about the opinions of people and what Hollywood thinks. And, you know, who cares what the Academy Award says? I mean, that's a bunch of billionaires swapping gold statues with one another. You know, it's a mutual back scratching operation. I'll give you a gold statue this year and you give it to me next year. And it's, it's, it's basically a, it's a promotional tactic. It's a marketing strategy. It's a ploy. And that people put some kind of, um, respect on something like an Academy Award. Well, maybe Academy Awards meant something one time, but they don't really mean much these days. They're basically celebrating ugliness and evil 
and perversion and whatever goes against Christian virtues and which basically follows the cultural Marxism. And you can see that. Well, um, you could also add this about the Nobel Peace Prizes. There was a time that maybe the Nobel Peace Prize meant something, but it's obviously been hijacked uh, by the world. So that, uh, for example, uh, President P.W. Butter of South Africa uh, revealed that he was told by the American ambassador that if he would release Nelson Mandela from prison, uh, where he was in prison for acts of sabotage and subversion and terrorism, actually, where people had been killed, um, even grandmothers and, and little children from petrol bombs and other things that his Umkuntuwi Sizri terrorists had done. So he wasn't there as a political prisoner. He was there for actually having violated laws and, and initiated a violent revolution for terrorism. And, and in fact, he had been given a chance to, to be paroled out of prison early if he would renounce violence which he would not. So the American ambassador came to President P.W. Butter in the 1980s and said, if you release Mandela, we'll guarantee you a Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> and so several millions in some Swiss bank account, by the way. Well, a few years later, his successor, F.W. de Klerk, as President of South Africa, released Mandela and then got a Nobel Peace Prize. And um, P.W. Butter uh, told us that he phoned F.W. de Klerk his successor, who now was president of South Africa at that moment, and said, well, I see that they've given you the Nobel Peace Prize, so I assume you also got the, I forget the amount, maybe it was $6 million, whatever it was, some foreign amount. Um, I don't remember the exact amount of money, but it was a lot. Um, and uh, he got no denial from F.W. de Klerk. F.W. just complained that, yes, he hadn't been told yet to share the Nobel Peace Prize because he'd been promised the Peace Prize, Nobel Peace Prize, and he got to share it with Nelson Mandela. They both um, were awarded jointly. And that reminds you of how the US uh, uh, president, at that time, I think Jimmy Carter, managed to get the president of Egypt and the prime minister of Israel to join together at, uh, come together at Camp David, sign a peace accord, and uh, as a result, um, they were given a uh, Nobel Peace Prize to share again. And uh, interesting. I've heard on a number of occasions from different people how American ambassadors are promising Nobel Peace Prizes to people if they will do the bidding of the globalist New World Order. So, you know, evidently these things aren't quite as neutral or <laughs> independent as they're made to be. So we've got to understand what we're dealing with. We are dealing with a world war of worldviews. And secular humanism is actually a religion which deifies man. It, it makes man God. It puts man on the throne that should be reserved for God. Francis Schaeffer defined humanism as the placing of man at the center of all things and the make of man the measure of all things. Interesting, I was a prisoner of humanism in Zambia in 1987. Uh, President Kenneth Kohinda had been brought up in a Christian home and uh, his parents were dedicated Christians, in fact, and they'd studied at, uh, at the evangelist training school in Livingston, Malawi, or Nyseland, as it was called then. Well, Kenneth Gwenda says he could not agree with the Calvinism of his parents who believed in the depravity of man. He said, I don't believe in the depravity of man. I believe in the goodness of man. And he, made, he wrote the book, uh, A Humanist in Africa, and uh, he made uh, secular humanism um, humanist socialism, in fact, was the term, the national guiding ideology of Zambia. And interesting, here's Kenneth Gunda, an estated socialist humanist, and they had it on billboards, big placards, the principles of humanism and of, of socialist humanism, which was the national uh, worldview and ideology. And uh, when he was locked up by the evil British in uh, Lusaka Central Prison, he had a cell all to himself with uh, plumbing, electricity, um, access to the library, desk, bed, um, sheets, pillows, a couch, gramophone, all sorts of things, uh, three cooked meals a day, things like that. Um, but, you know, the British were evil colonials. But Kenneth Gwinder, he didn't believe in the depravity of man. He believed in the goodness of man. So when he was president, he shoved 1,200 people in Lusaka Central Prison, which the British designed for a maximum of 80 prisoners. Instead of one prisoner in a cell, um, he shoved 50, 60 prisoners in a cell. No bedding, no plumbing, no electricity, no hot meals. Um, there'd be one cooked meal of starch a day, which was basically just uh, starch, what they called sata, 
but only protein came from the flies that flew into it. And uh, there was no electricity or plumbing when I was locked up in the Sarka Central Prison as a presidential detainee. Now, I wasn't charged, and nobody in cell 11 was. Uh, all of us there were um, presidential detainees at the pre at the president's pleasure, is the way it, it uh, was described. And there we were, crammed into cell, no um, no trial. In fact, most of the people in the Sarka Central Prison when I was locked up there in 1987 under Kunda, most of them didn't even have prison uniforms. Most were still in the tattered remains of their civilian clothes. They were remand prisoners. They hadn't yet had to day in court. Most of the 1,200 prisoners were remand, hadn't had to day in court. And uh, one had been there eight years, uh, and they'd apparently lost the witnesses. So here this poor man was stuck in prison. He hadn't had his day in court, and he's, he's been in prison for eight years. So interesting what people can do who believe in the goodness of man. And, uh, of course, Zambia is also a one-party dictatorship, and they only had uh, one choice, one party, one option in the elections, and that's what they called democracy. Interesting. So <clears throat> Alexander Solzhenitsyn described humanism as the proclaimed and practiced autonomy of man from any higher force above him. So when Nelson Mandela became president of South Africa, he abolished the long-standing over 120-year practice in Cape Town of opening parliament with um, scripture reading and prayer in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And he abolished scripture reading and prayer, and he even refused to have a minute of silence because apparently Marxists don't want to acknowledge any higher source of authority above them, not even with a minute of silence, although there were people who pleaded for that. He just abolished prayer and, and Bible reading and then went ahead to abolish scripture teaching and Bible and scripture reading and prayer from the schools in the country and so on. So you can see how people act in accordance with their worldview. It's not always a conspiracy. It's not like everybody doing these things is doing it because they've sat in a room and they've agreed or that they're knowingly following the Sabbatan or the Illuminati or the Marxist uh, manifesto. Many are doing it because they have imbibed a worldview. They've come to believe in a certain way because of the indoctrination gulags that they call education institutions, uh, because the news media, because the uh, entertainment industry, because they, they've basically been brainwashed and shaped and groomed and uh, led to believe this is the right thing to do. So uh, in a real sense, we're in a world war of worldviews. It's not just that the people doing these things are members of the Communist Party or Sabbatans or Illuminati people involved in secretly worshipping the devil. Uh, no, there are those people. Uh, but many of the people furthering these different agendas are doing it because they have been indoctrinated. They believe this because the World War of Worldviews has captured their mind. And so um, what is the basis for secular humanism? Well, their theology is atheism. There's no God. Their biology is evolution. Man is a product of evolutionary chance. Once upon a time there was nothing and then there was something. That something became everything. A whole lot of time and a whole lot of nothing made everything. The ethics amorality or relativism. There are no moral absolutes. What's this psychology? Existentialism, self-actualization. Everything revolves around me, myself, and I, the new trinity, me, myself, and I. What's this sociology? A classless world society, the abolition of the traditional family. So why is there so much war against gender, war against the family, war against mothers, war against fathers? Why is there so much hostility to traditional marriage? Well, it's part of the sociology of the secular humanist mindset, which is we need a classless world society. And why should you have a mother and father bring up the kids? Let the government bring up the kids. Much better. And uh, economics, <laughs> in one word, socialism. Redistribution of wealth through government interference in the economy. You need to penalize the productive by taxing them heavier. You need to reward the parasites by giving them free things. What's in politics? In one word, globalism. The politics of the secular humanist is globalism. One world government, one world economic system, one world interfaith religion. So the political agenda is plainly that man is a product of evolutionary chance, and this theory must be taught as a fact of science in schools and the media. Education must be controlled by the state. Teachers, textbooks, and certification all by the state. Education must be secular, free of moral absolutes and non-Christian. Sex education, state-controlled schools should be compulsory to break down the moral fiber, break every tie of blood, soil, nation, faith, family, to create a new world order, the new socialist man. In this way, pornography must be allowed as free speech. Even while you ban people for hate speech and for uh, thought crimes, 
uh, pornography must not be censored under any circumstances. Abortion, well, that's a woman's right. Although abortion is my body, my choice, even though it's not your body. I mean, it could be a female mother having a male child. Can a person be two genders at the same time? Well, that's another subject. Some people say yes. But abortion, uh, that's a case of choice, although you don't have a matter of choice when it comes to medical tyranny, masquerade madness, uh, lockdown lunacy, um, salvation by vaccination, branch covidians. You've got to follow the cult no matter what. Uh, homosexuality, well, that helps. Alternative lifestyle also brings down the world population. Excellent. Alternative lifestyle must push that. And criminals, well, criminals are just victims of society. They require treatment and rehabilitation, as opposed to thought criminals and these cursed people who dare to vote Trump or uh, who question the results of rigged elections. You know, they must uh, actually be locked up. Uh, so you understand the criminals are victims of society. They need treatment. But people who disagree with the New World Order, I mean, they blasphemous. They are uh, they are traitors. They're heretics. They must be the equivalent of being burned at the stake. And so instead of punishing criminals, rather punish society. Uh, instead of the criminals being behind bars, let's put the whole of society behind bars. And of course, the right of citizens to obtain and own firearms for self-defense must be limited, eventually curtailed. Why would you need protection? The government will look after you. The UN will look after you. Big Brother's watching. And then all power and authority must gradually, progressively be centralized into big government. So you can see the results of this world war of worldviews. Uh, plainly, what we are involved in right now is a mind siege. There's lies of our age. Man is good by nature, but corrupted by society. But Jesus said it's out of the heart that proceeds evil. The heart, the problem is the problem of the heart. But nope, according to the secular humanist, it's society that's, that's corrupt. Man is by nature good. Every man possesses an innate moral goodness, they say, and happiness is the measure and goal of our lives. Only fools restrain their desires. Everything is relative. All you need is love and big government. Only material and economic changes can produce social change. So the secular humanist says, there is no God to save us. We must save ourselves. The postmodernist says, there's no absolute truth. We must create our own truth. And the new age says, there is no God. I am my own God. So like Shirley MacLaine standing in front of the ocean shouting, I am God. Well, no, she isn't. But at first, the temptation is to see mankind as God. Then it becomes us like the party as God. Finally, it's me as God, like the party leader. And so the progression moves from the worship of man to the worship of us, the group, to the worship of me. And you get like a North Korea worship of the leader. So in the end, all anthropologists become idolaters. I am God. They're like little antichrist. They exalt and magnify themselves in the temple of their own minds. And uh, they think that Karl Marx is smarter than God and Nietzsche is superior to Christ. They think totalitarianism is better than freedom. They think socialism is better than private ownership property. They prefer evolution to creation. They think random chance is superior to purpose and design. They prefer falsehood to truth. They prefer hatred to love. They prefer evil to good. They prefer wrong over right. They prefer moral relativism over moral absolutes. They think abortion is better than adoption. And they think pornography is better than marital love. They think loose living is better than self-control and family commitment. They think the politics of victimization is better than personal responsibility. No wonder the Bible says, do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your own mind. And so we are involved in this world war of worldviews. And you also think of Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there's no God. They are corrupt. The deeds are vile. There's no one who does good. And so we are seeing a really destructive war going on in the world, which is attacking the basis of everything. This is the Frankfurt School of Marxism. This is cultural Marxism. This is the termite strategy. This is Antonio Gramsci's idea of rotting the insides of every institution of education, entertainment, news media, religious institution, political. This is Herbert Marcuse's philosophy of using foul language and ugliness on the arts and in um movies and plays and writings in order to subvert the very pillars of Christian thinking and turn the Christian minds of the West into non-Christian minds and then into anti-Christian minds. And so instead of exercising the wrath of God against sin, you'll see the government becomes exercising the wrath of man against God and against those people who seek to follow him. Back to you, Andrew. 
Thank you, Peter. And um, before we go, uh, can you just give the audience the details? Um, we don't have to get into it too deeply today because we've got three, uh, another, we've got this show and another two shows before it happens. But the International uh, Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, Sunday, November the 13th. I'm saying it now so that people all around the world, yes. they can sync their clocks. So um, where would people, what time does it start Cape Town and what time does it finish and how can people follow it during the day remotely? Yes, so um, on the 13th of November, which is the second Sunday in November, it's an international day of prayer for the persecuted church and we're encouraging churches, home fellowships, groups, families all over the world to join with persecuted churches. Now, bear in mind that 400 million Christians live in countries under governments that persecute the church, where the Bible is forbidden or heavily restricted. And so to think of that, 66 countries where Christianity is persecuted, it involves 400 million Christians. And so we need to learn from them. We need to pray for them. We need to support them. And we need to uh, mobilize pressure on their behalf. And one way we can do this is by observing at least one day a year um, as part of this worldwide campaign, which we believe something like 300,000 churches are committed to being part of, uh, making this day a special day of focus to speak on the persecuted church, remember the persecuted church, look at what the Bible says about persecution, and to pray for those living in restricted access areas under governments that are totalitarian, that are, are persecuting Christians and limiting Bibles. Of course, our mission exists to serve the persecuted church. We have set up the website, www. IDOP-Africa, uh, IDOP-Africa, IDOP stands for International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted. And uh, it's a worldwide one, even though we, amongst the different ministries that are promoting this, uh, we are particularly focusing on, on Africa and, and focusing that. But there are other groups in every continent, Voice of the Martyrs, Open Doors, and others who are uh, promoting and providing information on what's going on in Asia, what's going on in uh, the Americas and so on for us to focus. So that's the 13th of November. And uh, from early in the morning, we'll be having uh, services on this. And you'll see a whole lot of audios and videos being um, uh, uh, put up, uh, uploaded onto the IDOP-Africa website. And of course, ACH will be having traditional Christian message on um, praying for the persecuted on that day. Thank you, Peter. Are there any sort of live streams for people to follow? Um, that was my other question. I'm sure there will be. And again, if you go to www.idop-africa, uh, we will have that on, on that um, website. There will be services. As we get close to time, we'll know who's doing them and we'll be able to put the links there. That's great. So, folks, as I say, put that in your diaries for now, because um, obviously one thing I'm unable to do for you, I don't go live, but Peter will be. And of course, it is still uh, uh, three weeks away. So we will update you nearer the time. I just wanted to give you advance warning so that if you did have any plans and it's something that you can it will interest you, then uh, basically mark it in your diary. And of course, Peter's in Cape Town. So uh, you need to look up, if you just type in current time Cape Town onto Google, which we don't like, but if you just click enter after that, it will give you the current time Cape Town and you can work out the distance behind that. Be warned, our clocks go back in Europe on uh, this Sunday and they go back in America next Sunday. So you're going to want to check it again because the South African clocks do not change. So when I speak to Peter generally, it's um, sort of, um, he's only an hour ahead of me. But when our clocks go back in the winter, he is two hours ahead of me. And that's how it works because South Africa don't change their clocks. So I only say that. I'll mention it again nearer the time. But just check your diaries if this is something that you want to follow. And then you'll have the ability to do that. If we leave it too close to the time, you might have already made other arrangements and wish that you'd have known about this. That's why we're mentioning it. So before we go, Peter, can you please let the audience know where they can find your work and how they can contact you? Yes, thank you. So just to remind people that... Um Cape Town is UTC plus two. So we are two hours ahead of Greenwich Mean Time. Uh, our website, www.frontlinemissionsa.org. SA short for South Africa. So frontlinemissionsa.org. And uh, email mission at frontline.org.za. 
frontline.org.za, mission at frontline.org.za. My email is peter at frontline.org.za. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. Fantastic information as always. So, folks, you have been listening to a show entitled The Real Story of the World War of World Views. I want to thank all of you for listening. Peter and I will be back with you at the same time next week. I'll be back with you all tomorrow. And until then, folks, have a wonderful day and bye for now.